Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, the third Little Atoms special from Future Everything. Coming up, a chat with Paul Walensky and Joe Shrewsbury of 65 Days of Static, and then a close encounter with the Space Lady. Paul Walensky and Joe Shrewsbury are of 65 Days of Static, an instrumental band from Sheffield, as comfortable crashing samplers as they are putting guitars through too much distortion, influenced by a technologically dystopian present and an apocalyptically likely future. They can be found filling venues, galleries and headphones with different kinds of noise in their ongoing efforts to find the limits of what being a band can mean. What being a band can mean is what we're going to... uh, end up talking about a little bit later in the interview but first of all as I've already mentioned this is my fifth interview of the day and Paul and Joe are just back off rather a uh, a gruelling tour so um, you'll forgive us if we're all a little bit frazzled for the duration of this talk but guys tell us about well how did this tour go? Very good. Yeah it was really good. We finished last night in in York and came straight straight to Manchester. Yeah it was a bit more um, it was a bit more confusing than regular tours because it was in the middle. We did this special one-off show because we were doing... Uh, well, we, we did a performance of our first album, which came out mm-hmm. ten years ago, followed by a second set. So that project was quite, um, it was quite unusual for us. So whereas we've toured for much longer periods of time, it's felt, it's felt a lot easier. Mm-hmm. This particular week, was, uh, it, it threw us a little bit. So. It also had an interesting um, disparity between shows in the, the London show where we did the 10-year anniversary thing was kind of sold out, 1,400 capacity, but we also played an art centre that we first played 12 years ago to the day that hadn't changed at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And last night we played kind of 200 capacity pub, essentially. So more and more that seems to be the reality of of doing this, that some places are are, are, are kind of swollen with people and some places are still... um, It's quite a lot of hard work. I think Mm -hmm. that's reflected across... Someone was saying last night, that's reflected across the whole um, industry, tickets, people aren't coming out to gigs and stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting seeing that firsthand, and it's increasingly obvious that that's what's happening. Well, we'll come back to the 10th anniversary thing. It's Mm. obviously a good good thing for us to talk about when Mm. we talk about what bands are doing, how to to redefine being in a band a bit later on. But um, for anybody who's not familiar with your work, tell us a little bit about where you started, where you met, how you got going and everything. We started 13 years ago. Yeah, about um, that. In Sheffield, Joe's from there. I finished uni and stayed there. We started just by 
making loads of noise, really. I was kind of doing the programming side of things mm -hmm. and the electronics, and Joe was doing the guitar noise. And we started playing shows, figuring out what we were trying to do. We got a drummer, kind of um, became more like a looked more like a regular band, there's like four, four of us, but we still didn't have a singer. Mm -hmm. And the music we were making was quite strange and quite noisy. And <laughs> somehow, I think just through really heavy touring uh, in transit vans up and down the country for ages and uh, over and over again, we, we, we built up a small but loyal following and eventually put out our first record, mm -hmm. which was The Fall of Math, which would be 10 years ago, and had just enough success to kind of tip us into more touring and just kind of followed that pattern ever since. There's never been a huge breakthrough moment um, or, or, or massive hit, but every time we do something, it's like these tiny little steps forward that's kind of pushed us down the road and we're now, um, uh, our sixth record came out in October? Yeah. Last year. Um, and we toured that between October and sort of now. So that's still what we're kind of doing. Just add relevant to future everything I suppose while all that was going on two other things were happening the first of which is that we the electronic side of um, what Paul does a lot of and, and Sai who's not here today there was a constant technological struggle to kind of represent live what we were trying to do mm -hmm. so that meant lots of um, crashing computers and stuff that I don't fully understand breaking down and as we've continued to make music that's all become updated, which is yeah. quite interesting um, what's actually possible now. Specifically in relation to, to what we were trying to do, it's, like it's almost not an issue anymore, but until very recently it was a huge issue, technology. And the other thing is, is that the music industry has kind of completely crumbled around us and, and is doing so. And we're in many ways in an advantageous position in that we've never been particularly big relatively and mm -hmm. we've never been particularly cool relatively and so we have a quite a strong foundation and quite a good relationship with the people who listen to our music but it has raised a lot of questions that we're trying to deal with at the moment about how to make records and how music how the band and album format is relevant to um, now really because um, I don't know if it's obvious to anybody else but it seems to us to be it's becoming quite a dull medium really playing live obviously will always be fantastic but albums and stuff are are becoming obsolete because mm -hmm. that's not how people buy music anymore and so we're quite concerned with trying to find ways to innovate what it might be that we can do within being a band how would you both i mean in a really boring prosaic category of, of where to find it in the shop way how would you both describe the music but then let's talk about after that how the preoccupations in the music have changed, how you, what you think about the music has, has changed as you've gradually progressed. But, you know, again, really, where, where would we find it in a, in a record shop? <laughs> um, <laughs> that might be the problem. Um, <laughs> um, if you can find it in a record shop, if you can find an open record shop, I suppose we've made what we see as quite um, different records. A lot of our earlier output is unfortunately bracketed as as post-rock, which yeah, is something exactly. that we've tried to, that, which is why I to escape for quite a long time. Um, <laughs> so in general terms, it's very noisy. It's, I think at one point it was quite melodramatic, but has hopefully become a lot more subtle. And it attempts to sort of... I very rarely talk about... I don't think we very rarely talk about it in these terms. Try, like in, in, yeah. in the normal interviews we do, we, we, we just refuse to answer this question these days because it's, it's, the, it's the music journalist's job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've never really understood. Well, for us, post-rock... 
it's kind of shorthand for a band that wants to be Mogwai but aren't, yeah. aren't as good. They've just got some delay pedals. Whereas that's nothing that we've ever really chased. The only thing that we see we have in common with that is we don't have a singer, which we forget is still a really big deal, but mm. is apparently still remarkable. Well, I've also seen it described as math rock, which seems really lazy as as first album does have the word math in the title. <laughs> Unless you invented that genre, it seems like a really no. Lazy it actually coinage. makes it make, that's, that seems to make a lot of people really angry, particularly math rock fans who are <laughs> really angry that we're described as that because we're not um, apparently. But. Uh, I think we've, we've got math got rock <laughs> fans don't sound particularly a scary bunch. Though, <laughs> well, so. You've not seen what I've seen. Then, but, um, I think um, the fact is is that the the reality of trying to keep a band of our size going and and um, the kind of hands on nature of it is mm-hmm. probably the truth is is that we very very rarely think about any of that genre stuff mm-hmm. and we certainly don't think about it when we're actually writing music because that's quite a dangerous thing to do. I think you have to really just write find your own way find your own way yeah but then again that means that you're you know you're setting yourself against it's easy to fall into those things that for marketing purposes and all that sort of thing you know to say well this is a thing that's easily categorized as this type of thing and to do anything more interesting you're inevitably having to sort of step outside of that and say okay well we're not playing that game yeah we're used to that now <laughs> i mean we've just like we've been doing it for so long and stubbornly avoiding entering any of that that we just kind of we're now not even invited to those kind of parties we <laughs> were just left to our own devices somewhere somewhere in the gaps between the genres so let's talk about how it's changed then so how has you know how has the way that you've approached if we you know again we're talking about albums now as being a sort of redundant medium but it's still the best way to get into the you know into the music in those <coughs> points so how have how have they progressed as, as you've gone along i guess well actually i suppose the album is our chosen medium and continues to be and it, mm-hmm. and it was a little bit like um James Bridal was saying before about books being yeah. kind of already been superseded, but they'll be around for a while. I don't think we've completely abandoned the album as a as a format, and particularly our last record, I think needs. I'd like to think is much better listened to as as a whole. In terms of writing music, I think as young, much younger people, we were throwing a great deal of um, ideas up against the wall to see what stuck, and in a sense, we were free from the generation before in that we were of a generation where you were allowed to take influences or ideas from many different sources and and mash them together. But in another sense, we also hadn't learnt to focus that into a a simpler idea. So Mm -hmm. a a lot of that listening back is is overly complicated, I think, and I think one of the main things that's changed is uh, the ability to use less strokes, less things. So a relative minimalism that is in, by no means minimalistic, but it's relatively minimal, yeah. You've been in a band pretty much concurrent with the um, downfall of the idea Collapse of being able to industry, make, a, yeah. you know, make a, yeah, a, a sensible living as, as a, I was going to say a pop star, that's obviously not the, uh, you know, <laughs> not the right terminology. But yeah, the collapse of the record industry and you know, the rise of you know, file sharing, the rise of you know, MP3s and stuff. So I want to get us on to talking about the realities now of being... In a band, you said at the beginning when you started, it was you're on that treadmill of release an album, relentlessly tour that album. Hmm. A year later, release another album, tour that album, and that's clearly still <coughs> happening. I mean, you are doing that same to, same thing now to a point, yeah. But that's a really dangerous approach because writing a record to be able to go on tour is absolutely the wrong reason to be writing a record. Yeah. You need to write a record because you've got something to to say <laughs> to, or to, to try and express. 
So we've always been very careful to not let ourselves get tricked into doing that cycle, mm -hmm. uh, which would make much more sense financially. And for any label that was trying to work with us, it would help them a lot to be able to build some momentum. Mm -hmm. But um, but that doesn't that just doesn't feel right for us. Additionally, we've never actually made any money from our records mm -hmm. um, and, and the sales of them. They, I think, all, pretty much all of them are yet to recoup the money that got invested in the first place. It's amazing that people are still willing to to, 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 to let us make them, really. So our our survival comes from the touring, which used to be easier, and it enabled us to not write records for the sake of writing records because we could just keep touring. And for a while, as technology got cheaper, that got easier for us because because instead of carrying around lots of samplers and, uh, and, and keyboards, you could just carry around laptops. Mm -hmm. and we're certainly not purist in, in that kind of approach to music. So it made things easier. It meant we could fly to places without having to spend thousands of pounds on excess baggage. Mm -hmm. and that was good. But now everything's sort of catching up with us from that side of things, and touring's getting uh, a lot more expensive and a lot more difficult, and we're still not making any money from records. So in fact, you know, less records are getting bought than ever before. So um, everything's diminishing. So what then does the, the record, what's the point of the record? You know, what does the record become into, what does that symbolise to you as people in a band? Because do you need to keep continuously making as if you're not making the record to then tour that record? Do you see what I mean? It's, it, it like becomes, you know, why, why not just continuously tour for years and not go through the trouble of making a new record? Well, for us, on one level, we're not, we're not quite successful enough to tour indefinitely sure. um, because there's a danger if you, if you start going round and round too quickly to at the level that we do, people will stop coming to see us because they'll assume we'll be back in six months' time. And mm -hmm. it, it doesn't sustain itself. I think this is about... The, there's a very real tension between the industry and the actual... the people that are trying to make the music, particularly yeah. down here at this level. Mm -hmm. And the problem is that the whole industry is geared towards supporting album releases sure. and so that and secondly we're not 21 or 19 or 15 we're not coming up now we also grew up in an age where the album was mm -hmm. sort of the accepted medium and so we're almost probably in that sense very outdated in that in our approach to it and i, I i'm not entirely familiar with how people are releasing things yet but they don't seem to have come up with a particularly great antidote or alternative to the album format I mean, it's still, it's still a value, isn't it? It's like the novel thing. Uh, you know, novels have kind of been settled on as a, mm -hmm. as a form for a really long time, but that's not made them old-fashioned or irrelevant. Um, and albums, they don't seem to have been able to evolve. You don't really... They're still around the 45-minute mark, mm -hmm. even though, you know, typically, even though with digital, they can be as long as you... But it's still, again, as James was talking about the books, you know, the, the music itself still exists as an artefact, whatever form it's in, whether mm -hmm. you're playing it live or whether it's a digital file or whether it's, it's on an album, it's still a thing, and there is still something that's seen as culturally more worthwhile of, like, a long, you know, a long release than yeah. constant singles, isn't there? I mean, uh, it seems yeah, like and it's, it's more of a piece of art if you're releasing a long-playing record. And the, the form of... Uh, 10 to 12 songs mm -hmm. around 50 minutes something like that's been tried and tested yeah. and it remains for us like a good it's a really good way of expressing a, a certain set of ideas because not a concept record as such but a way of looking at similar ideas from, mm -hmm. from different angles it's really good um, it's just it doesn't seem especially going to conferences like this and seeing people like James Bridal talk there is 
a very strange new future that is happening now. And these tools that we have currently as musicians don't necessarily feel like the best ones. Yeah. Uh, like the album, it's a great thing for expressing certain ideas, but not necessarily the best thing to reflect the world, at least the world that we're seeing around us. But also, I guess we do tend to forget, because we've all grown up with albums, and that's the, that is the way most people, and probably most people in this room, in sort of interface with music, is through that form still. But I guess we do forget that, you know, in the history of music, played music by human beings, the album has, has been, like, you know, what, 100 years or something, probably a little, a little bit more than that. But, I mean, it could be seen in the long run as, as just a form that's a, that's a blip on that landscape, and perhaps, you know, going forwards, what other ways are there that you can... You know, beyond performing live and obviously digital releases and things, perhaps there are other, other formats that will supersede it. And in 20 years' time, we'll look back and think, why did we think that was a thing that needed clinging yeah, yeah, on to yeah, as, as a cultural art? For sure. I mean, I'm not sure if people do sit and listen to albums all the way through anymore. I, I don't, haven't actually thought about whether I do or not, but it's definitely something I do less and less, yeah. partly through the tra- just the transient nature of the last 10 years and stuff being in storage. But... Also, don't immediately reach for vinyl or CDs because it's so easy to reach for a computer or an iPod uh, mm-hmm. and it's just there. So while I'd protect the creative sincerity of, mm-hmm. of the album and, and, and I want it to be conveyed like that, actually, I think there's, uh, th- there's a fluidity to the digital nature of the music where, and, and that's fine, people have greater access to the music through the internet, streaming and stuff. I mean, we, we released a single on Monday, or our, our label did, but it doesn't exist mm-hmm. uh, as, as a single, and so it almost has been completely swallowed. Now, the label's um, motivation for releasing a single is to promote the record further, get the music on the radio, uh, get the music heard in some way. Mm-hmm. But then, so because of that, there's no physical evidence of the single, only there's no seven-inch. Mm-hmm. I would argue that that's not necessarily what you would describe as a single in the mm-hmm. classical sense. It's... It's, it's a PR yeah, tool, it's PR completely tool. ephemeral. You've just been on a tour, you can't sell that on the tour and that you've just been on. As a band, it has yeah. no... With the, it's almost deemed... There's very little motivation to kind of... Well, there's a lot of motivation to try and make that interesting, mm-hmm. but the argument that we're having with the executives in our lives are how, how can you expect us to want to sell something mm-hmm. to people digitally when it, they already own it on, in an album format, mm-hmm. whether that be digital or real? And so for us, it's just very disappointing that the label and not to attack them specifically but therefore the industry itself hasn't actually found a mechanism um, to kind of provide something exciting mm-hmm. and for us we really shy away from doing that because it is it just feels like regurgitation to us and therefore it's really really unexciting mm-hmm. we know that if people listen to that song individually they'll go to spotify they'll go to itunes they probably already own it it yeah. doesn't need to be done and but yet, then it's paid advertising. It's like you know, it's like you're buying advertising space by doing that rather than putting an advert in a in a magazine. You know, it just performs the same function in the end. Yeah, I suppose so. But then that's one thing, I guess. But then asking, but it means you've asking got to do people, the work, right? You've, well, you've asking people thing. to buy it is the is the yeah. real problem. I mean, yeah. it does exist on iTunes as a mm. single, and the way that we found we, we found a way to be comfortable, you know, getting behind it by putting a B-side there, which is available to buy, and we could shout about that mm-hmm. because it's a new song that yeah. we feel has worth. So we kind of ignored the single, really, but talked about the B-side that we've released. And yet on, on iTunes, you can buy the single. It's called Taipei. You can buy it for 79p, mm-hmm. but it's just... I think they put the radio edit up there. 
So uh, at first I thought it was just going to be the identical MP3 that would be on the album. So there's no, absolutely no, it's not on a, <laughs> in a nice seven inch or a cassette. It's not, it's yeah. just the exact same data, except they put the radio edit up, which was never designed to be, I mean, that's just, it's, it's had a minute shaved off yeah, it. It's the same so thing, so a shorter. DJ might play it, but it's less good because <laughs> of it, you know, so it's all very silly. So this, the tour that you've just done, you've mentioned that, you know, one of the dates you did this, basically played through the, um, the, the, the fall of math because it's the 10th anniversary of it. And the preoccupations of your music are about the future and about trying to think of new ways to, to, to be in bands. And this is, a, you know, a step into nostalgia, really, isn't it? It seems like... And it's a thing that's risen up. People have been doing this for, for a few years, this idea that it seems like, like, a, like a good banker, you know? It's like, this is a good bet because there's a, there's a built-in audience out there of, of fans who... Who would buy this? So, how do you tell us how you actually feel about about doing that? I think you're probably a bit ambivalent about. Well, firstly, we are very ambivalent <laughs> about doing it, but we, we we have to remember that there there seem to be a great deal of people who want to see that. Yeah. And I have to say, if we're going to present things in an album format, then it's disingenuous to turn around and then be quite annoyed that people might want to. Yeah, sure. See it. Um, however, this is a a trend, I think, for, for looking backwards mm-hmm. that has possibly always been part of music since it started to kind of lose ground as technology grew past it, mm-hmm. um, for, you know, from when it was initially quite exciting in the 60s and 70s, I think it was at the forefront of, of actual cultural change. But since then, as things have bypassed it, I think the trend to look backwards is more and more important to the people who are trying to sell the music. Yeah. So this is a, a sort of something that comes from above then, from, again, the, the kind of executive level. And they're right, that has sold um, a number of tickets. It's allowed us to, to do a tour when we wouldn't otherwise have been doing a venue of that size. And, and then again in Europe in April, we'll be doing it. However, that highlights, again, this huge tension that we have between this group of people who want to sell the music and, and us who want to make the music, who have absolutely no interest. Going over what we did ten years ago, I mean, we play a lot of that as part of a, of a much more updated set now, but actually revisiting it as a whole makes very little sense yeah. musically. Especially in, in, the, in the live mm. context, anyway. Yeah, um, so this is what I was going to say next. So what, what's it been like to revisit it yourself as, as musicians? As people that created that ten years ago, as everything about you has changed, your music has changed, you yeah. have changed. What's it been like to revisit it? Well, on the one hand, it was really, it was really nice because mm-hmm. it made us realise that we have, in our opinion, got better at all of this stuff like, over the past <laughs> ten years. Uh, the songs still stand up on the record, which is reassuring, even if the production maybe doesn't of that particular record. But the strangest thing was... I mean, we've, we've learned to appreciate that... Well, it's kind of about the thinking of trying to expand what it can mean to be, be a band, really, because there's the, there's the live shows and there's the recorded albums, and those are, like, the two main templates. And we've spent the past decade working out how to be most effective in each context, and there's a very different approach needed for each one. But the nature of this project, where we were taking something that was designed as a record and recreating it live... I mean, it worked. It was a, it was a great night, and mm-hmm. the crowd loved it, and it was... It was great playing to a crowd that was so receptive and loved it, but at the same time, it didn't really work as a live show, or at least it, it wasn't half as good as the kind of live show we know that we can mm-hmm. put together. Because, like Joe said, half of those songs we do still play live, but in sets of more material that mm-hmm. are designed to have some kind of flow to them. But the record, as it turned out, playing it f- from start to finish, for us, was quite a disjointed process. 
and that's a strange, it's a strange uh, contradiction of, of, well, mixed feelings about the whole thing, really. You mentioned that obviously, you know, it's, it's sold tickets and people have enjoyed it. You talked before about right from the beginning having a, you know, a certain relationship with the, like a close relationship with your fans and supporters that, you know, a much bigger band would not necessarily have, and a band that's obviously connected, network, you know, on the the internet these days and all of that. <laughs> so, how has it been received? I mean, do you think how has it, how did it go down? Very well. It, yeah. I, I would tenuously suggest, I think. I'm just trying to get a handle on what it is that I want to say is wrong about going back and doing yeah. that. Is, uh, if possibly it's, is the whole culture of playing albums that were written 10 years ago indicative of a sort of anxiety about what the future actually is? Because mm-hmm. when you watch an album all the way through like that, you know what's going to come next, and that's precisely what we don't know is going to happen. And I think that's, that's my problem with it, is, is that the walking on stage to, to do that, you, everybody knows what they're about to hear and they know what order they're going to hear it in. Whereas what strikes me about coming to Future Everything, this is the second year I've come to the conference, is that a lot of the things that we're talking about are being talked about in there are very exciting and not as scary as I think they're actually going to be. I think mm-hmm. the actual future when it gets here is going to be pretty grim and, and terrifying because of a lot of the climate issues, the, the population issues that are going on. So... Maybe it's a, a safety to go and watch something that, 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 you, that you know about. Um, it's a nostalgia that I, I don't think it's a, entirely a good thing. It's almost as if, as well, that there's a nostalgia that's false. I'm thinking of, like, we're in Manchester, right? So, like, you know, recently, you know, the Stone Roses reformed and, and did things, and the hysteria around that and people buying tickets, it seems like far more people went to go and see the Stone Roses reformed gig than right. probably did when they were playing, when people liked them. It's almost like there's this idea that people have of a, perhaps a time in their lives that were better and more carefree, that they're sort of clinging to in difficult times as well. So on the one hand, the music industry is like is looking back to a, a perceived golden age of yeah. when it might have made more money, but at the same time, people cling to that nostalgia as if that's got some worth to them. I, well, think, I think that's what the music industry does, and that's what it's always done, and, and hmm. that's not necessarily the end of the world. But the problem is, is that if that's what the music industry demands from its artists, and then when you're in a an economic situation like we're in now and there is no spare money, everything's tightening, is that the industry fails to reinvest in itself and promote new things. Mm. So you're always being asked to do, to kind of build on past glories and no one ever kind of gets to stick their neck out or, or where that's happening, it's happening really, really underground. And even in the 10 years, the 13 years that we've been going, radio in this country has become a lot more... He was, he was only one guy, but we lost John Peel, and, and, mm-hmm. and, and immediately that began a slump into radio programming. At the same time, digital, you know, you've got radio stations galore on the internet, but there's no kind of um, the ability to reach a lot of people, so everything's quite disparate. So I think that is what's not... The effects of that are not quite with us yet, but it's harder for young bands to access studio time, to access radio to access the kind of the proper tools to make music because mm-hmm. the industry's reinvesting in what already exists and that's not great. So let's talk about ways of redefining then what it means to be in a band. Recently you've done basically an art installation. Tell us about this Sleepwalk City. Give us a description of what that actually was and then we'll talk about why you decided to do it. It was in Sheffield at Millennium Galleries. It was a, a music festival called Tramlines mm-hmm. which we'd, we'd headlined one of the stages the year before and... They wanted us to come back, but we, we didn't just want to do the same thing again because it would just have been the same thing. Um, but they gave us this space and said that we could do 
whatever we wanted with it within some vague budget that was available. So we um, we got uh, well, we, f we basically filled it with noise in the end. Uh, we got 16 speakers, two rows of eight, <laughs> and then hired a massive PA and put that at the end of it as well and created. Well, it was sort of done in two parts. We did, um, there was a looping 20-minute installation throughout the day full of all of this drone, which was coming out of the different speakers and, and moving around, or static, so people could move around and change what was happening depending on where they were in the room. And then we did um, nine performances over two days of a song from our new record called Sleepwalk City. Mm -hmm. We did a 30-minute version of it and used the weird surround sound system that we built mm -hmm. to kind of push that song into into space in a, in a way that you could only exist in that space that you couldn't recreate either at a normal live show or on record mm -hmm. just because of the nature of, of this weird thing that we built. Essentially able to make the noise travel around the room because it, imagine this is the stage, this is the PA and then there's 16 speakers mm -hmm. heading backwards and you have a captive audience in the middle and then so we're able to, to reach each of the speakers individually and put so 16 separate things plus the front. So you can literally send waves of sound or, mm -hmm. or cross sound, mm -hmm. meaning that really you had the ability to affect people mm -hmm. surely by volume and because and, it was quite intense in the middle. And we well, then. Because we did like zero research into you know, the acoustic properties of the room or indeed <laughs> any kind of acoustic theory. We just. We, um, and six, 16 was a good number because. We knew that we could get our computer to yeah. output 16 different things. <laughs> um, but that kind of naivety, I mean, that's, we've been making it up as we go along. Mm -hmm. for, and there's a re something really important about making it up as you go along. And you could probably do what we did with a surround sound system, if you know how to use a surround sound system yeah. properly. But because we didn't, because we built an, a, a new thing, then that kind of motion sickness that we created, if you really stood in the middle of it, is something that, that was new mm. and, and ours and controlling that and kind of it led to a level of intensity and confusion that that we really enjoy um, I mean it might not be for everyone and it might not be as sophisticated as a professional sound mm -hmm. installation but it was a lot more it was a lot closer to what we were trying to say which was kind of that we're confused and scared about all of this stuff that's happening so how else did you express that I mean what else was going on the visual side of things was the daytime installation was Google Maps, mm -hmm. but we kind of mirrored that. We took a lot of um, sites that are visible on Google Maps, and this, it was put together quite fast, but can, can you remember some of the sites? Because I'm just kind of trying to... Well, it was based on some of the... Some of it was based on the places, like China and Australia, juxtaposed with the, um, the super-rich harbours yeah. and the, the dirty coal. Sydney and because we'd just been to Australia, we did a we did a tour. We went to Australia and China, which we were very lucky to do. Mm -hmm. And in a matter of about twenty four hours, forty eight hours, we were in Australia on at the time the hottest day they'd ever had on record. Which I think they're talking about living underground in a hundred years time or whatever. And there were very large trains of brown coal moving towards the coast to be shipped to China. Mm -hmm. We then flew to China, part of the problem, and. Um, they then experienced the most polluted day that they'd ever had on record and essentially blacked out the sun and we all got very ill. And that's obviously a ring of coal power stations burning mm -hmm. brown coal that Australia is selling them. And so quite lucky to see that human effect on the planet firsthand over quite a large scale. I mean, one thing follows, mm -hmm. you know, the other. 
and so that was quite fresh in our in our heads. Um, then there was also prison broke while we were making all of this, and like because we did, we conceived of the installation while we were making the record, we also had this in mind because mm -hmm. of this idea of trying to push stuff into a new form, you know, not just a record, not just a live show, some third thing. But of course, as everyone's probably realising, the reason that we do all this with noise is because we're really bad at articulating. It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, kind of, that's kind of what it, that's kind of what it became because, point. you know, Snowden did his thing yeah. and just everything went crazy and we were all avidly trying to take in all of this information and process it and huge admirer of people, again, like James Bridle and Trevor Paglin, the mm -hmm. photographer, and mostly people I've heard of at this conference. Sure. Um, it's Timo Ar Arnell, is it? Mm -hmm. um, and this, this idea of making invisible infrastructures visible because we currently lack a vocabulary to talk about it. Mm -hmm. So all of that was coming into us, and we were trying to make visuals for this installation because we wanted it to be immersive, not just in the sound aspect, but, but visually as well. Mm -hmm. And it was kind of just smashing it all together because... What we had at our disposal was scale and volume. Mm -hmm. And so we built these sort of Rorschach uh, mirrored cities or countries going into each other that we'd taken wholesale from Google Maps. And that was... Obviously, we had the 16 tones going on. And um, it was... It, the, the scale of it was very daunting. And I think the surveillance aspect of it was very, very clearly... Mm -hmm. It was overt it was in the presentation. Absolutely, yeah. but Also, what we were going for in the end was trying to be honest, because we don't know how to talk about it. Like, all this stuff is happening. We don't really know. We're not the people who can explain this to anyone. We can only reflect the confusion that we greet it with. And you can also, you're also you know, really overtly displaying that as well. In the, you know, you're talking here about not necessarily feeling you can articulate it. In words, but you know, you're a, a band that does music. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is what we're, we're, we're all boils down to: is yeah. that there's still something incredibly powerful and, and visceral about loud music mm -hmm. and, and noise. Mm -hmm. And very, um, very few people in music seem to be trying to engage with this. <clears throat> and on the other hand, I think there's also a really strange culture of actually suppressing any sort of um, political, ideological views at all in music. Mm -hmm. And I know a couple of examples firsthand. I can't really say where bands have been told to kind of not speak about sure. um, things that they've done and, and I don't know why that's happening everyone seems very very scared of criticizing anything at all and I think music's at the forefront of that sort of collapse into becoming very mundane and it doesn't it's losing its its mechanism to actually try and change anything and I think that's what worries us do you think then did you I mean do you deem it a success is this something you want to do you want to do again? How was it received? And what did people it, it, actually it, came and it, saw? It, it, I, think, I think it was received really well. Yeah. Uh, we learned tons of stuff doing it. I mean, apart from anything else, we never realised how much control you're allowed to have. Uh, I mean, we're, we're, we're huge control freaks anyway. <laughs> but with live shows uh, on the tour, you kind of have to take what you get. Mm -hmm. Venues are venues, and you have to find a way to make it work within those confines. But we got to the art gallery... And they were, you know, they were moving walls for us and pulling up the floor to hide wires, and you didn't realise the level of the level of uh, control you can have over a space. So I don't know. There's, there's something we're we're new to exploring, but it does feel like there's um there's something to be said there for um. Well, I mean, I know, I know sound installations are in no way a new invention, mm -hmm. but um, it'd be nice to think that we can bring something of the. I mean, we might not be as articulate as some other uh, artists in, in one respect, but we do have. That kind of we know how effective the power of a, a kind of old-fashioned live show can be, mm -hmm. and it'd be really good to somehow harness that power 
and bring it into these new spaces because, well, it just feels like there could be some use. Can I just add to that? I don't think it's about inarticulacy. I think mm-hmm. it's, it's actually about the fact that this possibly presenting stuff like that speaks to people on a much more visceral level. You don't, mm-hmm. have, to be, you don't have to back it up with academic or, well, academic knowledge of, of, of what you're talking about. It's very, very obvious that, that the media is not really getting this right. What we did in the end was throw up a lot of images, simply images that you see all the time that, that are horrendous things that were happening at the riots in Istanbul, the Iraq war. The Google robots. The Google robots. Just all of this stuff is, is right there in front of you and... A lot of people at this conference have the... Um, a lot of people who are speaking have the um, ability to articulate what it is that's happening. Mm-hmm. But a lot of us don't have that ability, but we have all these other things that we have to offer. And actually, I'm personally just simply tired of living in... Specifically in, in, in Western Europe, and in, possibly this is a British problem, but it's very hard to find a mechanism for that fear that you feel is happening, um, of, of what's happening around you. There's no political outlet for it without resorting to grassroots activism, which is being suppressed by governments anyway. So to fill a gallery with pictures of this stuff that you see all the time, mm-hmm. and instead of soundtracking it with Jeremy Paxman, BBC, toe the line, what you have to watch on Newsnight, instead just backing all that with horrendous volume and noise was just so satisfying to actually say that what this represents, what we see every day, what this represents is something really, really terrible that we ought to be trying to change. That's, that's all. And, and, and it's okay for that to be, to be the beginning of something um, bigger. Yeah. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. What's next? Have you got plans to do a similar thing? Uh, we've got some ideas in the, yeah. in the pipeline. The thing about Sleepwalk City, as usual with 65, is that we in, inadvertently used like loads and loads of equipment to make it work, and it didn't come, it didn't come cheap. Mm. So, I mean, we, we 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 tried to get it. It's a future everything, to tell you the truth. But they couldn't find they couldn't find the right venue for it, mm-hmm. uh, and then we were on tour, so it didn't happen. But it'd be it'd be great to to rebuild that. Or we're working on more things, but. We're waiting for the right sort of way to present them. The way that we dealt with this 
useless single being released by the label was to put out a a B-side or a track that we had which we were saving for something else that we never got off the ground which is it's it's called Drone Not Drones and our idea was to to get a lot of people to contribute ambient or or drone music Mm -hmm. and and basically try and crowdfund vinyl and and whatnot and try and give money to the relative anti-drone stuff but we haven't actually got around to getting that off the ground. So in the meantime, we've released the music. And, mm-hmm. and, and this was... Someone in America has already done a 28-hour drone installation called Drone Not Drones for precisely the same reason. So hopefully, if we do it, maybe someone else will just, just pick up on the whole thing. But um, I, I think I saw that on the website, that somebody else has that, you know, started the thing off. Somebody else has taken it and... Oh, uh, well, no, it, 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 we can't, we can't. It, it, we, it was a catchy slogan that we thought we'd come up with and we, we, oh, okay. we, we ran with the idea, <laughs> but unknowns to us... Someone had beaten us to it last year. Oh, I see. As, as well. They, they didn't we didn't find that out until we... They didn't take the baton we, from you and, yeah. and, and, and carry on. We accidentally stole their baton. <laughs> but they're, they're into it, you know, to that happening, and I mm. think the idea now might be that other people name whatever they want drone or drones, because it's very simple. It, yeah, it's almost, I, I like the idea of that. Somebody like running with it, and, just, and um, basically you start a thing off, and then it goes off and becomes a, has a life of its own mm. out there in the, in the web mm-hmm. somewhere. All right, well, we'll have to uh, draw it to a close there. So you've been, you've been listening to half of 65 Days of Static, uh, Paul Walensky and Joe Shrewsbury on that side. Give them a hand, please. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs>
that was very serious for him and me as a consequence. I had participated in some anti-war demonstrations, but upon meeting Joel, uh, we went into hiding. We were really terrified that he would end up spending 10 years in a federal penitentiary, which was the consequence of evading the draft, burning your draft card if you were public about it, which he wasn't. Mm -hmm. So the first 10 years of our 30-year partnership, we spent pretty much in hiding, literally in a cave at one point. Wow. Uh, we spent a winter in a cave on Mount Shasta in Northern California. And uh, from there, felt society encroaching even on the wilderness up there in Northern California. So we set out for a place on the map <laughs> in Canada, in the Yukon wilderness of Canada, called a place called Mount Joy. It sounded good. Okay, we'll go to Mount Joy. Is that why you went? So, because of the um, you name? Know, just the name. We mm -hmm. had really no other indication that it would be a good place. It was probably full of grizzly bears and, and, and Arctic winters. But uh, we headed north in an old, gosh, I think it was a 46 Plymouth that we mm -hmm. found for cheap. And got to the Canadian border, and they turned us away, saying no one would be able to fix that car if it broke down in Canada. At least that was their reason for turning us away. It might have been... Joel's beard and long hair and our <laughs> hippie attire, but might have suspected we were running from the draft. Mm -hmm. So, so um, when did the when did the performing start? When did you start? Um, so well, at that time Joel was performing, mm -hmm. playing his guitar through an early Echoplex, which was a reel-to-reel -reel echo machine. And he would stand on the entranceway of our cave and just play these cascades of notes, which would echo through the trees. Mm -hmm. Mostly, well, he actually did sing. Too. He, he did some cover songs and some originals and wanted to perform as a one-man band, and mm -hmm. that's what our intention was. When we went on our second try to get up to Mount Joy, we took a ferry boat to Alaska. He had planned to perform there, but Alaska, again, was very conservative. Mm -hmm. and, uh, he didn't feel he fit in or his music would fit in. So some people we went... We met there, suggested we go to Boston. By then it was September, and they said that uh, schools will all be getting their fall sessions, and there'll be a lot of young people and you know, people more receptive to what you're doing. So we drove across country in a VW bus, landed in Boston, and again had severe culture shock. Boston was very provincial, too, and very <laughs> staid and old world mm -hmm. to us, from mm -hmm. being from San Francisco. Yeah, he abandoned his musical career at that time. Mm -hmm. We ended up losing all his equipment in a pawn shop that winter. And I started panhandling just out of desperation in Harvard Square and up and down Copley Square. And a few months into that, or maybe a year, started creating artworks that I would sell on the street. I did pen and ink drawings, and Joel did collages and little booklets of poetry. And that lasted for seven years mm -hmm. until our first baby was born. And at that point, I felt so disenfranchised and disconnected from humanity, really, society, that I was very uncomfortable and felt I owed it to my baby, my little baby daughter, to do something better. And so I picked up an old beat-up accordion. And because I had piano lessons mm -hmm. in my childhood, I figured my way up and down the keyboard, and the buttons were arranged in fifths. And I suddenly understood, oh, okay, I can do this, and went down and... Park Street Station, and it was an earn-as-you-learn proposition, but people were supportive, much more supportive than I had found, you know, approaching people for money was just the worst. 
And suddenly, as I played music, people approached me with money in hand and dropped money in my accordion case. That was the turning point, the major turning point. So in that case in front of you, you've got the hat. So it's when you put that hat on, Uh you become the space lady, the persona. When did that start? Um, How early? I believe two years into my accordion Mm -hmm. uh, stint, they came out with the first electronic Cassiotone. The MT-40, which is what I play to this day. Mm -hmm. And I was fascinated. Another street musician was playing it. Every time I passed him, I would stop and listen, which was unusual for me because I was so single-minded of purpose to get that money Mm -hmm. to support my growing little family. But I would stop to hear him and Mm -hmm. chat with him. And and I earned the money to buy one on Christmas Eve that Mm -hmm. year. And that was a turning point. Mm -hmm. I didn't get the helmet until a year following it was Joel's helmet. helmet. Of course, I described yes. it as a hat, but it's yeah, a helmet. It's indeed. a winged can we, helmet. Can you show it to us? Sure. So this was originally a Cosmic Man's winged mm-hmm. helmet. And we had found it in, I think, 1971 in a costume shop in San Francisco. And at the time, Joel was making sculptures and paintings on board using twinkling little twinkling bulbs he would buy. And he immediately saw the potential of putting a bulb in this ball on the top of the head. The ridiculous ball. I hated the helmet at first. I thought, this is the worst. It's so clown-like. But he wore it with great pride. And as I said, it wasn't until about a year I'd been playing the Casio that he designed a little blinking plastic daisy for me with the bulb in it. And so I wore that for many months. I guess it was about a year because at Christmas time he suggested I wear the winged helmet because of the red ball, I don't know, maybe Rudolph or something, <laughs> he thought would uh, go over well at Christmas time. I resisted fiercely at first, but then agreed I would do it just this once. <laughs> and I got such a response, it was just overwhelming. Even people going by on the subway trains would <gasps> and laugh. And suddenly I got the joke. Okay, this is really cool. It's, it's funny. The wings are symbolic. Mm. Wings of song, inspiration, messenger of the gods, Mercury. I don't know, it just worked. And where did the space lady um, come the from? The space lady came, didn't evolve <laughs> into anything. I didn't have a name all the time we, mm-hmm. I played in Boston. Then when we finally made it back to San Francisco in 1984, people approached me, asked me if I would play for their parties or play in this club, be on the radio show, even TV. I got was on the news one time. And of course they asked me what my name was. And when I said Susan, they said, but what's your stage name? <laughs> and I hadn't even thought to have a stage name. So months and months of Roiling that over, I came up with Susie Sounds. Our little production company was Amazing Things with the Z's, you know, amazing and things with a Z on the end. So I thought, Susie with a Z and Sounds with a Z on the end will fit with Amazing Things. We were producing a little cassette at the time, which was all instrumental. It was more or less the Cosmic Man's brainchild. And mm-hmm. In fact, that was the name of the tape, The Cosmic Man. And we were rubber stamping it with amazing things as our, our in-house production company. So, so that had already evolved. And Susie Sounds just never quite caught on. People mm-hmm. got confused and called me Susie Songs or Susie Tunes. and <laughs> couldn't quite remember <laughs> Susie Sounds. And somehow the Space Lady just evolved spontaneously. People were referring to me as the Space Lady. So I went with that eventually. Once you'd adopted that persona, did that change 
your performance? Did it change mm-hmm. the emphasis on the music? Probably did. I, Joel was seeking out songs with an outer space-based theme. Mm-hmm. Then Radar Love was kind of, you know, same context, I guess. So I started deliberately seeking out supernatural and the outer space-themed songs. And, mm-hmm. uh, I think Joel had that in mind with some of the songs he wrote for me. So let's so. talk about the, the music that you play then, because, well, last night you mm-hmm. played a, a selection of covers of 60s psychedelic numbers, Virgin Prunes, The Beatles, and also some of your own penned or patent songs penned by Joel or, or now you now right. husband, Derek. Uh-huh. Um, so let's talk about why those songs, I guess. Is it, is, has that always been your repertoire or has that developed as well? Well, it's still developing. Mm-hmm, of I'm, course more committed than ever to conveying a message of love and peace and harmony. And so I've dropped a few songs and added a few songs. Mm -hmm. I'm writing songs now. And, of course, Eric has a huge repertoire of songs of transformation, as he calls them. And so I'm drawing on his songs as well. As I said last night, I have a talent for seeking out men who are great songwriters and getting them to marry me. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm really blessed. Mm -hmm. You've just mentioned that there's... A message behind what you're doing is the philosophy mm-hmm. that you're trying to portray. How does that? How do you think that comes across to the people that are watching? How do they receive that? It seems to be overwhelmingly received, and even the songs that are on the album, which I recorded in 1990, and I thought were very dated, <laughs> seem to have taken on a life of their own thanks to Michael Kasparas connecting with us and releasing the album on Night School Records. It's just transcended any expectations that I had. In fact, I'd given up. I'd hung up my my music in the year 2000 and Mm -hmm. gone back to Colorado to care for my parents. And I thought it was all history. I'd said my piece. It was time for to pass the torch to the younger generations at this (laughs) point. (laughs) At least two, maybe three in county. So let's go back to before that point then. So when you started first performing in the early days, you've talked a little bit about your life before Joel and yourself started performing. Mm-hmm. And then obviously there's a, if it's not impolite to say, a few decades between that and mm-hmm. the year 2000 when you decide for the time being to hang up the helmet. Mm-hmm. And tell us a little bit about the life you led trying to, you know, to make a life for yourself as, as a performer and an artist because it seems like you had, again, an eventful, an eventful time of it. Uh, starting with the accordion playing, mm-hmm, yeah, sure. it was an uphill climb. Mm-hmm. But again, it was just I gained so much self-respect and respect from society at large because I was making a contribution. Mm-hmm. Although I had tried to make a contribution as a, an artist with my drawings and Joel's collages, it wasn't in a context people could grasp. Mm-hmm. You know, I was I was basically a street waif. You know dressed in <laughs> very grubby clothes. We were living in squats, and well, it was hand-to-mouth. Mm-hmm. And we didn't feel like we belonged. We felt like refugees in our own country. And it was a very demeaning time for me. We had cut off contact with any friends and family for 10 years. There was very little support, very few friends in Boston. We were just afraid. We were living in fear. Mm-hmm. And uh, it permeated everything. Um, and the breakthrough was finding that I could, I could still exist underground and play music, and people appreciated it so much more and interacted with me, spoke to me. And I guess I, was, I 
found my destiny there. I suddenly realized where my bliss was, mm-hmm. where I, my bliss was, so I could follow my bliss, as Joseph Campbell so wisely advised us. You mentioned there, you know, the underground scene, sort of, uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, adopting you, and, and the songs, as I said, the cover versions that you play, there's a lot of psychedelia. Oh, yeah. And, of course, no doubt, in, in San Francisco at that time, there was a lot of psychedelics. Mm-hmm. And, again, I want to talk a little bit about how, why did psychedelia in the repertoire, but also, you know, how those two things have obviously have influenced your... Well, um, the psychedelic era certainly influenced me to uh, drop out mm-hmm. of college and run off to join the hippies in San Francisco. Again, coming from such a small town in Colorado, I was not prepared socially. Mm-hmm. I had very few social skills, no academic training, no way that I felt I could fit in with that culture. So I was, again, living on the outskirts, trying to join, trying to belong, find a way to belong. So, And I thought the ticket to join the hippie culture was to drop acid, smoke dope, you know, take mescaline. So I did. <laughs> Uh, I was completely spun out of my orbit at that point and just pretty much became an acid casualty. I was so traumatized, I could barely speak. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when Joel hooked up with me, he, he sort of took me under his wing because I couldn't, couldn't communicate. And he, he, some, he had had some depression in his childhood in Chicago. He came from a big city and somehow related to me and felt protective and I needed that and he was a lifesaver in that mm-hmm. sense um, but we isolated you know the, the two of us he was isolated from the draft issue by the draft issue and I was experiencing that culture shock and so appropriate um, soundtrack now yeah <laughs> so we were both very influenced by psychedelics mm-hmm. and that eventually emerged in a more socially acceptable way through music. Brought me out of myself. Uh-huh. So I want to talk perhaps a little bit about how that's influenced Joel's writing, your own writing, going forward as well. There's, there's a lot of, I mean, obviously the space lady and the cosmic man suggests yeah. it as well, but there's a lot of imagery, space imagery, UFO imagery and law in your writing mm-hmm. as well. So let's talk about where that comes from perhaps. Oh, boy. Well, <laughs> we had a close encounter on Mount Shasta. Not that we saw little gray beings or green beings, but we saw a spaceship right over the treetops. Going, It was going too slowly to be anything man-made, at least in our estimation. It was enormous, probably twice the length of this room and as wide around, like a big, well, cigar shape is how they describe them. And it had emerged from a fog. We were sitting on the side of, on the mountainside with enveloped in fog the morning that we had planned to go to embark on our trip to Alaska. Mm-hmm. But we couldn't see 10 feet in front of us. So we were sitting waiting for this cloud to lift off the mountain. And sure enough, the sun broke through in this spot right over our heads. And this huge craft slowly passed over us. And we were just aghast. Joel and I and a friend. So there were three of us. We weren't high. We weren't tripping (laughs) or smoking at that time. We were waiting (laughs) to drive to Alaska, Mount Joy, Canada, Mm -hmm. actually. And so we felt we had been scanned at close range. And it was such a profound experience. We felt that presence with us forever after. And to this day, I Mm -hmm. 
I know there are beings out there and maybe in our midst that we have no idea with our limited senses are watching and maybe even guiding and protecting. Can we talk perhaps a, a little bit about the... Um, you've mentioned, obviously, Joel's songs and subsequently Eric's songs and Eric's huge collection of, mm-hmm. of songs, but... Do you have a collaborative relationship as well in terms of in terms of the writing? I wonder if we can if we can talk about that. If you how much input you have as well? I well with Joel's songs, he wrote them on his little acoustic mm-hmm. guitar, and then gave me you know the lyric sheet with chords, and I would go down in the subway with my keyboard and work out arrangements, which I would eventually perfect to my best of my ability, and then go play them for Joel, and he would usually say. I hardly recognize it. <laughs> That's my song? Okay, I, I get it. Well, I, I like it. It's completely different. So in the sense that I arranged them, mm-hmm. I'm sure, sure I had a, a hand in how they turned but out. Arranging but arranging them makes them different. Yes, yeah, they, they definitely take, were different than gives his, them your he own, intended. Your own touch, your own feel. But what can you do when you're transferring a guitar song to a keyboard? definitely has to come out different. So what was the difference then on using Joel's songs and then later on Eric's songs? Are they st- how stylistically um, different are they? Yeah, are they? again, they come out different. I use uh, Who We Are as the key. I use one of the automatic mm-hmm. bass lines, which is quite different from Eric's performing, strumming a guitar. And again, he says he likes it, and we harmonize on it sometimes. Can we talk about then... Let's go up to 2000 and okay. after that. And let's talk about when you're in touch with Michael and what happens. How did they come to the album being released? Well, for quite a while, several years, as far as I could tell, the Space Ladies music lay dormant and was just receding into the past. Mm-hmm. Until I, I was still getting emails and requests for cassettes at mm-hmm. the time still. And often people would request a CD. So eventually I took my tape to a sound engineer in my Colorado town. and He digitalized it, and then I had them pressed at a computer store. And so I had 10, 20 at a time made, and I would send them off in the mail one at a time, maybe two or three a month. And then I got an email from Erwin Chusid, the producer, mm-hmm. a DJ from New Jersey, who produces outsider music, a term I'd never heard before, but... Mm. He requested to put one of my songs on his album. This is Songs in the Key of Z. Yes. Yeah, it's an absolute classic mm-hmm. now, album Second of outside of music. So that was certainly a breakthrough <laughs> moment, although I didn't realize it at the time, you know, that it would travel around the world and be heard. I knew it would, but I had no idea it would take root and mm-hmm. sprout. Okay, so before we get to the, your contact with Michael, then at that point, mm-hmm. I also wanted to talk about the, the outsider music yes, thing, which is it's an interesting idea because suddenly that brackets you with a, with a group of other people who are right. all entirely unique, and the reason they're mm-hmm. outsider music is because there's nothing to group them with other people. And it's, uh-huh. it's an interesting thing. So that's going to point you towards where you are now and success. Yes. But how did you feel at the time? Because there's almost like an implicit, like... Statement being made by calling it outside of music. Yes, and when Erwin Chusen used that term in the email, I related immediately. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's where I belong. And then I listened to some of the tracks and suddenly understood maybe now that's like the shags. Mm-hmm. I got it why people might like my music because it's so bootstrap again mm-hmm. and incorrect. 
another term Chusid uses, mm-hmm. incorrect music. So I, I was happy and honored to be included, having no idea that outsider music was really legitimate outside of New Jersey, maybe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, but in Europe and, and here in the UK, obviously, it's, it's well-received, and I just feel so welcome here and so appreciated. And then, of course, Michael and other, two other producers reached out via email about, that must have been 2011, and I had met Eric in 2009, and we married that year, and played music together, folk music, and, and performed his music together, but I had never, I'd hardly mentioned the Space Lady to him. Mm-hmm. He is not a pop aficionado, and so <laughs> there was a little distance there. But he, the emails I kept getting, and especially from Michael and the other two producers, mm-hmm really piqued his interest so he finally insisted I set up and play for him and I did have some rudimentary equipment and I had saved the helmet thank heavens <laughs> so I set up my gear really with great trepidation because I didn't think I could remember how to play mm-hmm. at that point but as soon as I launched into Ghost Riders his mouth fell open and he said I've <laughs> never seen you so fully expressed mm-hmm. you have to revitalize this music and revive the space lady's career so it's thanks to eric the space manager that that the the space lady has grown new wings and is back so what happened then once that once the album was out how was it received because obviously now you're here i said you're about to embark on this or you did embark last night on your on your first european tour so what's it like to achieve success at i'm not going to say at an age, because that would be <laughs> But outside, you know, you just mentioned the other generation, probably yes, two generations yes. have, have, have come and gone since mm-hmm. you were performing music before, and now you're you know, competing with them, yeah. for, for want of a better word. What's that been like? Well, I'm a 66-year-old grandmother of three, and it's amazing to me. Just, I'm in a state of disbelief. I, I think this must be a dream sometimes. <laughs> I mean, to, use such a cliche is just it's so true though it's hard to believe and the impact of it is still just barely reaching me after last night's performance mm-hmm. at the Manchester and did an art gallery as well what a spectacular art, yeah, setting that was classic paintings and sculptures all around and the, the room packed with people who were riveted to what I was doing and, and having that sound system at my fingertips literally just I'm transformed. I mean, the Space Lady is in another stratosphere mm-hmm. at this point. And the album being so well-received, I mean, we're selling them hand over fist, and I'm asked for autographs, and, and people want pictures with me, and I don't know quite what to do with all this energy. It's, it's been a, a while since, obviously, you were street performing, mm-hmm. but is the persona we saw last night on stage, the Space Lady's stage persona, different to to what it would have been when you were street performing? Well, yes, nobody... Rarely did people stop. Mm-hmm. You know, people would pass by and maybe toss a coin or a buck in my box. If people did stop, more than likely they would have a European or British accent, <laughs> which was a clue right there. Mm-hmm. But I would. I had a mantra every time I set up. I would say, okay, if I can, if I can touch one person today, then my day will have been worthwhile. And often it was only one. But that person would be overwhelming in their accolades. You know, this is great. This is so different. This is so unique. Keep on doing this. You know, 
or come to Paris, I'll love you there, you know, Dublin, London. And so that kept me going, but I was never, I, I never had to deal with an audience. Mm -hmm. I was terrified of that. that. This is really my worst nightmare, <laughs> to be on stage and in front of a crowd and on the radio and ad-libbing. I had no idea how to do that. And you can't, you can't tell that. I mean, you, so I was there at the performance last night, and I thought you were stunning. You're, oh. you, know, you have a beautiful voice, first of all, but also your sincerity and directness towards the audience comes out. You know, you've talked about trying to project these ideas of peace and love to the mm -hmm. audience, and that's, you know, that's a metaphorical way of saying it. But you, you could see that the entire audience was wrapped and was, was connected to, oh, to, thank you. to you. I think it's, it's because I attract kindred spirits. <laughs> and we're all the same, the same consciousness, finding a focal point. And if my music is the focal point for now, that is... A, Tremendous blessing for all of us. So what's happening now in the, in the immediate future? So you're here in the UK oh. on a tour. How mm -hmm. many how many gigs Speak are you Speak to playing? the space manager. <laughs> yes, I can't keep all that straight. About 20, but, 20 yeah, gigs 20 right across gigs the country. Including busking in between, I hope. <laughs> and then what? What's, what happens then, um, do you think? Where, where next? We have a July gig in Roswell, New Mexico, where the... A UFO crash landed in 1947. We went to the festival last summer, and they paid me well to play there. I made very little in tips. Again, people mostly <laughs> walked by looking for hot dogs and <laughs> cotton candy and, and uh, heavy metal bands. But and that's it's worth going, going full circle for you as well, because I understand Roswell is where you were possibly um, conceived. My, I, <laughs> that's maybe a stretch, but my parents <laughs> did live there in 1947, <laughs> year before I was born. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, I asked my dad about it, and he said, oh, yeah, it was a weather balloon. They, f they figured that out, a weather balloon. <laughs> Swamp gas, right? So, you know, they had, had no credence for that. But, but it's, it's definitely a nice myth to weave into the space lady story. <laughs> All right, I'm going to... Um, oh, yes, yes, I heard that. Go on, mention a Christmas album. Oh, yes. <laughs> so I'll be working all summer on Christmas songs <laughs> because we plan to release a, a holiday album. Mm -hmm. So that will be out this coming Christmas 2014. Yes. Working title, The Sacred Space Lady. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what sort of, can you tell us already what sort of tracks you're going to be expected to play? Are they going to be Christmas? Is it going to be Christmas music? Yeah, it'll be Christmas music. Um, but no doubt particularly there, chosen Christmas music. Yes, well. I, I hope to use some more obscure Christmas carols. I have a few in mind. Mm -hmm. As well as Silent Night per request of my producer, <laughs> which I'll do a spacey version. And where is the, the next you um, After Roswell, we're planning for a European tour of how many how many countries, Michael? Two months. But where's the next immediate one here? So you're oh, Birmingham. Birmingham. Uh -huh. And when is that? Tomorrow night. So you're in Birmingham tomorrow night. So I'm told. <laughs> <laughs> so it would seem. I'm following his lead. This is the space lady, everybody. Please show your appreciation. <laughs> You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.